We've had a lot of conversation about geopolitics. It is certainly a, you know, being in supply chain, geopolitics is always in the background, at least since uh, the, the end of the Cold War, it has also been sort of an afterthought. But in the last two years, we've seen that change. Um, I'm wondering what, what is going on as it looks from the perspective of China and the West. What is really happening? Well, what you're seeing is the beginning of a modest decoupling of modest deglobalization, uh, but because it's not deglobalization and decoupling are, are rarely ever binary, it's always a little bit hard to describe. So when you talk about supply chains and interaction between the two countries, commercial relations, you're seeing uh, certain areas, certain sectors become very, very sensitive. Technology obviously being the obvious one, things like pharmaceuticals and PPE maybe, but you're seeing some of these uh, areas being identified as areas that need to be have supply chains pulled out of China, that these are the national security issues that the government should be focusing on. Uh, and, and they are either being pulled or they may be pulled in, in the coming months and quarters and, and years. On the other side, you've got many things that are mostly economic and not considered as much an economic security issue. And so for now, and it's general capital flows and other things, these are being identified as being okay. But the line for this changes based on how tensions between the, the U.S. and China and between China and the West continue to evolve. So right now, certain things are acceptable. Two, three years down the road, particularly if there are hostilities over Taiwan or South China Sea or trade relations or anything else, you could see these things de deteriorate and the line continues to move so that more and more of the supply chains, uh, pressures on supply chains is going to be on pulling them out of China. So your organization tracks these trends inside of China. How do you, how do you get access to the data? We have largely recognized in the West that we can't trust the official government stats. So tell us a little bit about how you get this data and, and what are we seeing right now? Yeah, so we... Uh, we identified a serious problem with China watching back, you know, almost two decades ago. And that was you can't really trust Chinese economic data. Uh, there was a recognition of this before. Now there's much more of a recognition. Uh, but what we went to in and, uh, you know, around uh, over a decade ago now, and we, we, we set up data collection operation, which would track the performance of the corporate sector in China not just Chinese corporates, not foreign corporates, not just corporates on the coast, you know, the big tier one cities like Beijing and Shanghai, not just a couple of sectors, but basically want to cover all the key sectors across all the geographic regions, across the entire corporate sector in China, so that we'd be able to identify what large firms are doing, what small firms are doing, what private firms are doing, what state firms are doing. And we've just continued to to, to hone the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, data analytics around it over years. So now we're tracking the performance of the economy uh, in real time. And what we're able to see is a picture of the economy that's often quite different from what official data tell us. Now, there's been a little bit more honesty in official data in, in the past year, year or so. So we would be able to see how weak the economy is. But what we'd seen over the course of the past decade was the fact that Rarely is anything this beautiful, stable line or gently descending line. If you look at Chinese GDP figures for the past decade, you see these beautiful lines. The Chinese government loves stability. So you always see stability in the data up, and, up until recently. And what we would show is that sometimes things were much worse 
occasionally when you were recovering from a from 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 some downturn that the Chinese didn't recognize in the first place, things would be such much better. But the most important thing was to understand that there is no orchestration of this perfectly stable economy that's being reported. You actually see significant volatility like you see in any other economic environment. And obviously that volatility has been ramping up quite considerably over the last couple of years uh, during the COVID era. Is the, is the China growth story overstated? Well, the China growth story wasn't overstated, but the China growth story is over now. And I, I think that's important. The one story that has been absolutely overstated was the idea of the Chinese consumer. There was this idea, you have 1.4 billion consumers in China. If each of them buys an egg, then you've got 1.4 billion egg sales. And wow, how can you not survive in a, you know, thrive in that, in that type of economic environment? Uh, we've never seen strong domestic consumption in China. It's always been suppressed. It's always been uh, the, the state is advantaged in the system so that, you know, households and, 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 and uh, private sector are disadvantaged vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, vis -vis the state. And so you've never seen that domestic consumption, the consumer culture develop. In terms of China writ large, uh, you know, this was a beautiful growth story for years and years and years. And yeah, the numbers weren't accurate most of the time, but generally, directionally, you saw very, very strong growth for many, many years. The most important development, though, has been that this economic growth model, which has wowed the world for 20 years, is over. It's over. And it's not over because it just fell off a cliff one day. It's over because the Chinese government the Chinese Communist Party identified a continuation of this economic growth model being a real vulnerability to its continued rule. Because essentially what you're doing is, you know, you're propping up the economy through, through, through lots of bad loans and through lots of reckless credit expansion to hit certain growth targets. And it creates a vulnerability for the party if suddenly that doesn't work anymore if suddenly this, 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 the economy zombifies. And so what you've been seeing from Xi Jinping over the past year to two years has been a structural transformation of, of China to, a, to, a, to a, a growth model which with much lower growth. And people haven't wrapped their head around this because it's such a dramatic change from the previous decade and the decade before that. But what Xi is trying to do right now is say, okay, we've, we've run this long with this growth model. Now we have to be more careful. We don't know how much we don't, uh, money printing we could do. We don't know how much, uh, you know, endless check writing to, to, to bankrupt companies we can do. The government can absorb a lot of these liabilities, but at the end of the day, we don't know when that will end. And if it does end, it'll be a threat to the party. So we need to get ahead of this. And that's why... The party itself has been engineering this transformation. It hasn't just happened because the economy, you know, the, the economic growth model ran to an end. It's happening because, because the party is scared that, that continuing on this growth model will be a threat to its survival. And so we are seeing an evolution, a real paradigm shift that we haven't seen in 20 years. I mean, it's, it's somewhat shocking when you think a country as big as China and frankly, as important to global supply chains has had this massive pivot over two years. And it's somewhat... From an American Western point of view, we can't imagine that they would give up all of this economic benefit for the sake of power. But what you're saying is that's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's happening. And I, I think it might be helpful to just explain how Chinese growth has traditionally worked. You know, you see these big numbers. It was 10% growth, it was 8% growth in past years. 
what you'd actually have there underneath under, underneath the hood of the economy was organic growth of say maybe it's four percent, maybe it was five percent, maybe it was six percent. But the government had said we want eight percent, and we have predicting eight percent, and we always hit our growth targets. And so what would happen is they would provide more credit into the economy. Most of it would go to the property sector. A lot of it would go build infrastructure. A lot of which wasn't needed. And once you got to the end of the quarter, the growth number hit because they just stimulated the economy until they hit the growth number. So there was an organic component of that. And then there was basically stimulus on top of that that allowed them to hit their growth targets. And this was great for years and years and years because it created this idea of the Chinese growth story. It created this idea that the Chinese market was this unbeatable, unstoppable economic machine that we were at the beginning of a Chinese century, which was going to keep you know, uh, getting bigger and stronger and, and then the growth accelerate going forward as the rest of the world was slowing down. So it had advantages. But we've gotten to a point now, as I said before, where you can't do this anymore. The party is worried that, that by adding on that stimulus layer on top, that they're keeping uh, they're, they're creating basically a government backstop on all economic activity in China. So you just, it's more and more good money after bad. It's more and more entities in China that think they, they, can, uh, they can go indefinitely with no economic considerations and they'll always have a backstop in the government. That's the way the property sector worked up until about a year ago. So right now, what the, what, the, what, the, what the leadership in China is trying to do is change the perception of risk in the Chinese economy, trying to tell consumers, households, firms, SOEs, commodity sectors, anything, any, any entity in China that you no longer have a government backstop that you no longer have a blank check for endless credit expansion. You're going to have to perform or we're going to pull the credit back because we've already, you know, the credit expansion the last decade, you look at what the Fed has done, you know, what China's done is, has, has been a level magnitude higher It's, it's in terms of uh, the expansion of, of, of M2. So the Chinese leaders are worried about this and they're changing the model and they're trying to teach risk and teach the idea that there's not a government backstop on everything. And it's been a slow process. But now we're at the point where they're actually having to show that there are casualties in this war in order to show that they're, they mean their business. And this is why we're in a very tough time in China on the ground right now. The COVID lockdowns, uh, are they legitimate or are they, is that just propaganda? No, the, the lockdowns have been, uh, have, been, have been huge. But I think, I think when we talk about COVID zero, it's really important to look at COVID zero in two phases. In 2020 and 2021, you could defend the policy as being one that led to fewer deaths, especially considered to some Western countries, United States among them, obviously, that it uh, did not allow a public health crisis to emerge in the run up to the party Congress or because of the fact that in China, uh, massive hospital undercapacity in, in rural areas very low vaccination rates for the elderly. So you could defend the policy as having accomplished some, some worthwhile things, or at least the policy can be justified. Was it the right call? Who knows? But it could be justified. What's happened in 2022 has been a completely different beast. And what we've seen here is widespread lockdowns, you know, asymptomatic people thrown in rubber rooms, uh, the complete cessation of, 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 uh, of economic activity, of you know infrastructure building, of human movement, 
traffic arteries shut, ports clogged. Uh, It's been something that has absolutely decimated the economy on the ground. So what's happened in 2022 is not really a continuation of what happened the the previous two years. It's It's a massive escalation. We could say maybe it's because Xi Jinping doesn't have good information and he thought this was a good idea. Some people think it's because Xi Jinping wanted to put a very tough policy and then see which of his subordinates would would do a good job with it so that he could see who to point to the next leadership. There's a lot of theories about this. But we do know that COVID zero is a massive demand crushing, cyclical uh, smothering device on the Chinese economy right now. And. Despite rumors this morning, there's just a new set of rumors that they were going to peel back something. You know, COVID zero is not going away anytime soon. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a process to get rid of COVID zero, not a, not, a, not a date certain. So is it fair to say if a company and many companies in the room have either a direct or indirect dependency on China, is it fair to say that they should be shifting and investing in different parts of the world? Or how do they respond to this? I don't think you can avoid doing that anymore because you don't know. You know what the worst case scenario is. We have no idea how close we'll get to the worst case scenario in the next five, 10 years. You know, will we have a war on Taiwan? Will we have deteriorations uh, on the economic side and trade side deteriorate even more? Uh, will there be even more technology uh, ring fencing from China that, 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 that further deteriorates the, the environment? We don't know how bad things could get, but we do know that not doing contingency planning is a very dangerous option. So what do you tell, I mean, looking at this data, you see which industries, because it is a still a master planned economy at some level, what industries does the current China regime want to prop up and which ones are they supporting and which ones are they trying to discount and, and let pretty much fade away? Well, what they would like to do is become an advanced manufacturing powerhouse. So, you know, some of you may have heard of the Made in China 2025 plan, which became very toxic uh, after a while. So they, they, they stopped saying Made in China 2025. But essentially, it was this idea that, that China was going to become the next global powerhouse in advanced technology and lead the world in artificial intelligence, robotics, 5G, biotech, uh, uh, quantum computing, and which also is, you know, quantum cryptography. Advanced technology, that's where China wants to be. They want to lead the fourth industrial revolution, something they hadn't had the chance to do in the past. They also want to have a green economy. The environment in China is not just an economic issue or or a political issue. It's a social issue. It's it's, it's extraordinarily important because you've got dirty water, you've got dirty air, and the party has to be seen as improving this situation from a health standpoint. So they want to lead green technologies, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's in you know pollution, uh, some sort of anti-pollution equipment. And then, of course, there are some sectors that are going to make sense in China if you assess what the economy is going to look like in the coming years. So what we do know is that China is going to have an enormous demographics problem. You know, there's, there's too many old people. There's not enough births. The working age population is peaking. There's too many males for the number of females in, in terms of uh, repopulation. So there are a lot of issues. Some people are going in and saying, you know what, we're, we're going to focus on elderly care because China needs a lot of elderly care. It's, it's a company that's it's a country that's getting older and older and doesn't have the, the, the infrastructure for that. On the other hand, baby food, things for babies. There's a very good chance in the coming years you're going to see the Chinese government go all out to subsidize childbirths. We're going to, you know, give free education and free housing and free baby food and free everything because they have to get the growth rate up. 
you know, the, the, the whole world is suffering from some demographic issues in terms of lower birth rates right now. But China really crushed itself by having a, a one child policy for a bunch of decades, which absolutely just just put the the birth engine in reverse. And so there are areas where the government is is, is wanting to intensely focus on and, and drive capital to and will be very attuned to, to progress. There are areas and sectors of the economy where where they're going to need help. They're going to want foreign expertise. They're going to want assistance. But they want to get away from the things which are typically heavily, heavily, you know, low, low value manufacturing, uh, the property sector, which is just sort of building. And, and, and they're trying to get away of just chase good money, chasing bad. So bigger, high value manufacturing they're in for. They're trying to get away from lower value manufacturing. And they're trying to do away with the fact that the property sector is this enormous growth driver in their economy. So they're completely, from what you're saying, they're comfortable with manufacturing leaving to places like Vietnam and Mexico if it's low value. They're, they're content with that. They, though, want to move and shift their entire economic and industrial focus towards high-end manufacturing, electric vehicles, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's that's generally the trajectory. Now, look, if if a, if a factory announces suddenly that they're going to pick up from some, you know, from China and they're going to move to Vietnam, that doesn't mean that the, the authorities are happy. But what they do is they understand the economics of the situation, which are that wages have been rising in China, and even though the infrastructure has gotten much much better, uh, there are places where certain things could be done more economically in other countries, whether it's Mexico or Malaysia or Vietnam or, or Thailand, somewhere else. So they understand that this transformation, they were part of it. You know, they were part of the movement to China to get because of lower wages. And they're going to be part of the movement of, a, of, of lower value manufacturing away from China. But they do want to focus on the advanced manufacturing. They're not trying to lose low value manufacturing faster than they need to, but they understand that this transformation is underway. So they want to be well prepared to switch the economy to something that is more robust. So one of the other things that we've seen a lot is this sort of military or build out of infrastructure. Ships are probably the most commonly referenced part of it for civilian needs, only to be a front for military needs or this sort of really connected system. What is your read on that? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Well, I mean, that's part of the, the you know, naval strategy that China has to, to basically commandeer everything bigger than a canoe so that they'll be able to do sort of a civilian invasion of Taiwan or have the option of doing it if, if, if that's the direction they want to go. Uh, the, the Taiwan issue is so interesting because if you do a lot of wargaming, and I, I do a lot of wargaming. You know, I do the formal wargaming. I do corporate wargaming. You usually come out to the conclusion that China is not going to invade Taiwan. And they're not going to invade Taiwan because you've, you've got so much to lose. You know, they would potentially, particularly after seeing what happened to Russia in the, after, after it invaded Ukraine, you know, they would be severed from the, you, you know, dollar financial system, enormous sanctions. You know, you'd have, uh, um, a, you know, trade 
barriers and, and ring fencing of technology. And you'd have just every type of sanction you can imagine. Uh, why would China ever do this? Well, the answer is that that this sort of falls at a different level for, for the for the Chinese. Uh, you know, it's I often compare it to the fact that, you know, how the Americans would feel if if Texas were considered were flirting with China. Totally imperfect. Of course, Taiwan in reality is its own separate independent country. But the feelings of the Chinese are, are that it is part of China. And so you've got this this, um, you know, this this pull to to. To, to keep the country together and to not let the separatists in, in Taiwan get away from it. Now, here, here's the if, if if the prognostications that China will not that China will not invade Taiwan in the coming years are wrong. There's really one reason why it's prob that why there will be for that, and it's that people have been looking at it through the mindset of of China sort of this monolithic China, what is in China's interest rather than what's in Xi Jinping's interest. And it's a very interesting question to, to evaluate what will Xi's motivations and incentives be in the coming years? Because we could look through and say, oh, China would, would be absolutely decimated, maybe in war, uh, you know, it would be... Uh, Everyone would get. Everyone would have a really bad time. We get a, you, you, a lot of deaths in the United States, a lot of deaths in the Chinese side. But, but, but economically, they they would be crushed. Why would they ever willingly want to go into it? Well, the question is: Will Xi Jinping ever be in a position where he's looking around, he sees a slowing economy, he sees people mad at him from COVID zero, he sees increasing economic mismanagement. You know, he sees uh, uh, a lot of factors on the home front that are causing him personal anxiety. Could he look at this and say, you know what, I'm going to make a deal with some of these hardliners to do something. So it's it's very difficult to assess the Taiwan question going forward because everyone is basing on the idea that China's interests are this, but we may not be talking about China's interests anymore. We may be talking about what are Xi Jinping's interests, and they may be different from what Chinese interests are writ large. Has there been a precedent through history of one person having so much power over a country the size of China? Well, of course, Mao Zedong had, had it, but but China wasn't sh- the same China back then. It was a, you know, almost a vassal state of the Soviet Union for, for many, many years. Uh, Deng Xiaoping had a, a lot of power, sort of maybe who followed, followed Mao Zedong in the early years. He opened the country up back in the early 80s, but um, China wasn't China then. So it's it, this is sort of a new model. I mean, we're, we're grappling with how what what precedents fit into the fit into the a nice tidy category so that we can sort of assess Xi's behavior and sort of predict it going forward i don't think there are a lot of great models for it you know you've got enormous economic but obviously the 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 analogy that keeps getting we keep getting brought back to is the cold war but this is very different than the cold war in certain respects in that the soviet union was never the same level of economic power as China is now. So it's 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 a it's a new kind of competition, not just on the military side, but on the economic side. It's it's something the United States has never had to deal with before. And so that's, I think, why we're having well, why it's taken so long to come to a political conclusion that something needs to be done about it. I mean, the conversations changed just in a couple of years, even even in this industry. Um, you, you guys, when you looked at the data earlier this year, you saw a significant contraction. Everybody thought when China was going to reopen, there would be this economic boom. You didn't see that in your data. So it was the you, did, you didn't see you didn't see the same trends that everybody was talking about and expected. Right. That's exactly right. So 
I think the most important thing to understand about China right now is that you've got a structural slowdown. As they try to get away from, from, from property as a growth driver, as they try to get away from reckless credit expansion, you're going to see precipitous drop in Chinese growth over the coming years. Good, good case scenario, bad case scenario, that's what you're going to see. But something in the interim is happening, and that's the cyclical slowdown, and that's mostly because of COVID zero lockdowns. So what you've had in the pre, in past quarters has been an absolute smothering of demand by these incredibly draconian lockdowns, which stop almost all commercial activity and, and human movement. So you have this, this, this COVID zero blanket over the economy right now. And what we keep hearing from, from, from market commentators and, 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 and investors is like, you know, it's just the Chinese economy is ready to bounce back. It's ready to bounce back. You know, we just have to pull the lockdowns over. We had some very interesting data in the spring. So the, the Shanghai and other major cities went into enormous long lockdowns. Second quarter was in a contraction. I think official growth was plus 4%, 0.4% growth, but trust us, it was in contraction. But when we had the announcement of the lockdowns being pulled back, everyone got very, very excited. And they got excited because they thought that, uh, you know, you were going to see this big jump in activity. Consumers would spend and firms would go invest and, and, and they'd, 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 you know, reactivate. That didn't happen. And when we asked firms why not and why conditions actually got worse in the coming months as the, as the big lockdowns went off, as they said, COVID zero is kill, killing us. The nightmare continues. And as long as COVID zero continues, we're not going to borrow, we're not going to invest, and we're not going to hire. And that's been the really big takeaway from the 2022 data. There's this perception by many in the markets thinking that, okay, well, if they just release the lockdown, economic activity is going to bounce back. But the reality from what firms are telling us, we're talking about tens of thousands of firms telling us this, it's that you're not going to have a bounce back in activity until firms know that they, for sure, that a day from now, they're not going to be in quarantine. Or a month from now, they're not going to be locked down with all their activity stopped. So what we are at this point is in a situation where everything is waiting for the cessation of COVID zero. And that's not going to just be an announcement, hey, COVID zero is over, because firms on the ground are not going to believe them. What they're going to have to see is an outbreak in China, probably this spring, maybe later in the year, in which the authorities say, we are not going to lock things down. And they have to be convinced that COVID zero is over. And you may see economic uh, impact from, from greater spread of COVID, but it will convince firms to get reactivated. Until that happens, we're not going to get out of the current funk because firms do not want to reactivate. They don't want to borrow. They don't want to invest. They don't want to hire until they know that they have a clear, a clear path towards some sort of potential for economic success, which is not possible under COVID zero. That sounds like what you said earlier, which is supply chain executives should be anticipating a different world than the one we've seen over the past 40 years. Is a complete shift away from China. Does that mean all of Asia or just China itself? Well, Asia's in the middle of this. So I think that the, the desire for every country in Asia that's not China is that they will not be asked to, to pick doing business with China or doing business with the United States. And I think in most cases, that'll be true. But what we've seen in the, in the retail sector, the travel sector, we see companies that are being told, you will obey the Chinese line on, say, Xinjiang. You know, is it, is it a labor camp or is it, you know, no problems there? The Chinese have one take. U.S. and now through U.S. legislation, there's another take and the Europeans, so a Western take on this. Um, you're not going to be able to operate. So a lot of firms going forward are not going to be able to operate as if 
they could just put their fingers in their ears and say what, what the Chinese want when they're talking to Chinese officials and what Americans want when they're talking to American officials. This won't happen across the board, but we're moving to a world in which many companies are actually going to have to bifurcate their businesses and have a presence, a, a China and an ex-China supply chain set and corporate entity, because they are simply not going to be able to balance the requirements of U.S. law with the balance uh, with the requirements of Chinese politics or, or legal requirements there as well. We're moving in that direction. And that's a very scary place to be because it means thing, costs are going to go up. And it means ultimately supply chain, visibility, technology, data is going to be incredibly important. That transparency of knowing where goods were sourced from, how they were sourced and who they were sourced from is going to be perhaps the most important part of that story. I think that's exactly right. You know, the, you know, we're, we're in an age in which the politics of the U.S.-China tensions are going to dictate a lot of business decisions, a lot of a lot of corporate management decisions, a lot of strategic board decisions going forward. And right now, there's a little bit of an excuse. You know, we're not set up to be able to understand our supply chains. That that excuse isn't going to carry water in the future when when this relationship heats up. So you're, you're, there's a little bit of a, a time in which people are sort of phasing into this, but the excuses are not going to be uh, given any credence down the line. It's, it's well, a big deal. I think that is a positive note. We like to, look, yeah. to leave with positive notes. You're saying that the inflation, the, the supply chain story, the investments and the importance of the technology are going to live on for, for many, many decades. And ultimately, where this takes place is in the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to avoid moving in this direction because it's not just a matter of better economic efficiencies, although it absolutely uh, affects that as well. It'll be a matter, matter of, of political exigencies in that you're going to have to be able to say, we source from here, we don't source from there, we understand our supply chain. It, it, it's, it, this is going to be the new world we're in, and the sensitivities of this, as tensions with China deteriorate, are just going to be heightened in the coming years. Leland, appreciate it. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank How you. can folks find out more? Uh, we're on Twitter, at China Beigebook. We've got a LinkedIn page. Yeah, we try to put our, our, uh, our data out publicly as much as possible. So uh, check us out in one of those forums. Thank you.